Welcome, everyone. Anyone here for the very first time? Show of hands, please. Okay. Um, is that because the mindfulness revolution is happening? <laughs> you want to be part of the revolution? Do you know what mindfulness is? Because I'm not sure I do. But at any rate, it's hot, isn't it? Uh, Mindful Revolution, magazine now called Mindfulness. It's gone way past uh, non-GMO. Uh, <laughs> organic has been left in the dust. It's out there. So um, exciting times to be mindful. Um, <clears throat> a few words, especially those of you who are new, and some of you have been coming to the center, but perhaps not the Wednesday uh, talks. Uh, Dharma talks are not like other talks. It's not like a, uh, a lecture where you take notes or you even uh, relax and just let the information either bore you or entertain you, or you agree with it, you disagree with it. It's meant to be, this is a place of practice. First and foremost, this is a practice center. Teachings exist in order to facilitate the practice, to give it some direction, so that there are methods and techniques and uh, some plausible explanation of why, why bother doing all this stuff. Um, so listening mindfully, uh, is your, it's an opportunity for you to do that. I'll try to leave some time for discussion, then it'll be my turn to listen mindfully. What does that mean? Um, perhaps you think, well, I already know how to listen. If so, listen to how you listen. You may discover that's simply not true. It's a high art. Um, we give much more credence and uh, honor the ability to speak. If you're articulate and have lots of creative ways of formulating ideas and so forth, that stands out. We talk about a person who's good at that. I don't think we talk about somebody who's a good listener. It's sort of an aside. You know, oh, and he or she is a good listener. And then you move on to something else. Listening is a very, very high art. And to really have a, a conversation, a genuine conversation with someone, or exchange in this case, uh, you have to listen. Because otherwise the conversation is just an exchange of uh, lots of your opinions, my opinions, and so forth. So how do you practice? You practice listening by just being what you, doing what you're doing now. Some people who have been practicing for a while stay in touch with their breathing, which helps calm the mind down. As you're listening, it's not either you're with the breath or you're listening. Uh, that cuts down some unnecessary thinking. Uh, but also you may discover uh, that, that you don't listen or that listening for you is if you hear something that you agree with or that makes you feel good, then you perk up. And then if you say something that sounds uh, against what you've come here with, then you kind of tune out. Or suddenly your mind for no reason is planning what you're going to do tomorrow. Um, and suddenly, oh, and then you come back. It's not that that's wrong. That's what a practice is. If, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need a practice, and we wouldn't need CIMC. We're not. Have you noticed that you're not perfect? So there's a bunch of flawed people sitting here, and uh, we're, it's been told, said uh, that there are ways to help us uh, learn the art of living, 
That's wisdom. Wisdom is the art of living. It's not memorizing wise words. It can begin there. Uh, and teaching, of course, includes that now, videos, DVDs, internet, and so forth. But the words are meant, they're, they're signposts, they're pointing us in a direction. And uh, so these words are only valuable if they enable you to get to know yourself. Because a premise, an underlying a premise of the Buddha's teaching, perhaps all wisdom teachings, but I'll only say about what I know a little bit about, and that is the urgency of self-discovery. And you might say, well, what does self-discovery have to do with daily life? Everything, merely everything. Because the degree to which we don't understand ourselves uh, is a degree, that's what we bring to each other. That's what we bring to the world. That's what we make decisions with. And so, uh, as a great Japanese master put it, to study the Buddha Dharma is to study yourself. It's not going to the Widener Library. That could be helpful. It has its role to play. But to study the Buddha Dharma, it also means to learn about what the Buddha is saying, teaching. Uh, is, to, is to study or learn about yourself. And here's the part that's tricky. I hope by the end of the evening it'll make sense, especially those of you who are new. To study the self, to study Buddha Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. What? You came here to, you've been working so hard to craft a nice self-image, learn how to dress, present yourself. If you're just starting college, you're trying to see how everyone dresses, and how they talk. These days it's easier, only a couple of words you need to know. Awesome, like, and cool. <laughs> if you walk through Harvard Yard, here are these brilliant people, awesome. Oh, like, like, yeah? You're, oh, yeah, cool, awesome. Really, I don't know what they're talking about, but they seem to know. If any of you are from that culture, am I exaggerating? A little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, so please, in a relaxed way, see this as an opportunity uh, to help you learn about yourself. Um, Self-discovery is not always pleasant because what you see is not necessarily what you, you... What you may see is not who you think you are. And if you pay attention, you're going to see the facts of how you are from moment to moment, not an idealized image that perhaps we've worked hard to develop and cherish and de derive security from, and even strength. But it doesn't last often. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll drop that for the moment. Um, vipassana meditation is a, this whole path is a wisdom path. And if wisdom is the art of living, then Go a little further, say a little bit more, okay? Uh, wisdom is skill in living, skill. It's a skill that can be learned. It, again, it's not memorizing what Plato, Socrates, the Buddha, Jesus. There's some extraordinary human beings who've walked this earth and they've left us with a legacy of fantastic teachings. But um, the, it's the act of living. In other words, the wisdom has to come to life. It has to be a lived wisdom. You have to live your understanding or it's merely conceptual. And the world will just be the same way. And here, this is not to transform the whole planet with mindfulness. Sometimes I see messianic, apparently the Messiah is not coming, uh, Jesus is not going to save us, but mindfulness will. I hope so. That would be great. But right now, I start with just yourself. Me too. And if you work on yourself, that's what you give to the people who are in your life. 
So sometimes those of you who are new might say, well, doing all this sitting and quiet, isn't that uh, narcissistic and self-centered and antisocial and all that? Say just the opposite. Because it can be, but that would not be correct practice. You can turn it into another exercise enhancing the self, self-improvement. The wisdom path is not self-improvement. It's self-discovery. And then out of self-discovery is the letting go. It's the self that we're talking about now, from the point of view of these teachings, and you don't have to agree, but just hear it, it's an illusion. That there's a solid, stable, continuing self that is known as Larry, or whoever you are. And if you watch your mind, you can see it's not to believe what the Buddha said, or what I just reiterated. If you watch your mind, you can see that it's just a, f a steady flow of different images, thoughts, conclusions, contradictory. You're wonderful, you're awful. Just watch the flow. It's quite a show. Uh, and they all represent themselves quite convincingly as being you in the moment that they have the stage, they have the mic. And then suddenly, well, where, where did that one go? And it was so convincing. You're a terror. You don't belong in meditation. You can't even... Not follow your breath, you don't even know where your nostrils are. Get out. <laughs> Get out. You know, next moment, that's not true. You're just beginning. You're a good, kind person. And you're learning this, and other people have learned this. And you can learn it too, just like you've learned other skills. Yes, you're right. That's a, I mean, I am. I'm a fine person. And then that one's gone. <laughs> and just so you have all these versions of yourself talking to each other, replacing each other. And if you listen to your mind all day long, it's reassuring itself, tearing itself down, building itself up, living in the, in the past, imagining some future. In the meantime, it's just this. It's just now. Um, what do I mean by skill? Now, this is a, a use in the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha's teaching, so there, there definitely could be other ways in which the word skill is defined. The way the Buddha uses the term skill would be thoughts, in other words, mind states, because that includes emotions. Mind states, words, in other words, how we, we use sound, uh, engineer sound into words, and actions that are beneficial for you and for others. If it's beneficial for you and for others, then it's skillful. It could be beneficial for you, but harmful for others. Then that's unskillful. So that's, the, we cultivate certain qualities of mind by constantly nourishing them, by identifying with them all day long. If you're new to meditation, some of this may sound goofy, but uh, if you're gonna stay with mindfulness, you'll, you'll, you'll hear it again and again. You'll see it's not such a complicated idea. It just means, you know, you start to see what your mind actually is doing. And the way we've been relating to our mind is just to keep the same old mind going. And then we make changes, but the changes are minor, typically. It, that's what I mean by self-improvement. We get better, better furniture, nicer furniture. We po our character gets polished a little bit. We're a little bit kinder, a little bit more considerate, a little more sensitive, more patient. Those are good. If even that comes out of practice, that's wonderful. But practice is designed to go well beyond that. It includes that kind of... It's uh, because from the point of view of the deepest teaching of the Buddha, terms like emptiness. Emptiness of what? Uh, that sounds unappealing, because there isn't an English word that really does it justice, shunyata. Empty of this craving, this attachment to me and mine that it is somehow most things that are happening 
that's happening to me. And I'm going to use something relatively small and trivial tonight. I hope to give you an example on something you can work on all summer. So skillful, beneficial, ideally beneficial for you, for, for yourself and for others. Unskillful, harmful. First noble truths, if you, if you really knew, there are four noble truths. It's the core of the Buddha's teaching. All the Buddhist schools agree on this one. They interpret it slightly different, but they all agree on this one. First noble truth is there is, there is unsatisfactoriness in the world. Uh, can anyone deny that? So we're bound together as humans. And it's more than humans, but let's, we're enough. More than enough. Uh, we all uh, suffer. And the suffering can be from excruciating, and I don't mean just physical pain. Mainly it's psychic. The source of the suffering the Buddha is talking about is the psyche. Torment. Or it could be just mild dissatisfaction. So the first noble truth is there, there is this quality in us humans. And what's asked of us, do you know it? Are you aware of it? If you, uh, how do you become aware of it? Mindfulness. You become mindful. Oh, in this moment. Look, people discover I didn't know I was suffering. Men are worse than women. In my, my gender, forget about it. We're always fine. Until, you know, until we're not, and then it's a little late. Suddenly, okay, we'll leave that alone. <laughs> it's already a hot day. We don't have to get into that. Um, okay, the second noble truth is there's a cause. There's a lot of more and more uh, educated, scientifically-minded people uh, are drawn to this practice. I don't mean just the CIMC, I mean in general, because it's, it makes sense on a logical, rational level. It's saying if there's an effect, there's a, something caused it. So if you find yourself suffering, then the next question is why? Now the Buddha pr provides a provisional answer, what you might call a hypothesis. You're suffering because of craving and attachment. There's something that you want, you insist on being, or you insist on not being, and the world is keep constantly changing. So we get fixated one way or another, for or against, and the world could care less. It just rolls on. It's just the way it is. And a lot of surprises in life, not all bad, but have you noticed that? You must have. And so the, the normal tendency, in quotes normal, uh, is to fixate on it. and if you fixate in a changing world it's obvious that there's going to be some suffering coming out of it it's a head-on collision do you think in a, in, a, in a contest between you and the world who do you think is going to win okay it's, so so the, the second and that's an unskillful cause the, the, the fact that you're suffering is an unskillful effect Th these are making it a little more concrete so how you can see, assess how you're doing with your own, how you're living your life, so that wisdom becomes something with texture that you can actually see and feel and learn and unlearn. The third noble truth is cessation. That means there's a, a cure to this disease. And that's at the end of this suffering. Now, it means that in, let's say, small suffering, and it could also mean huge suffering, but there is psychic suffering. Remember, it's a psyche. If you have a body, you will have pain. If you don't want any physical pain, don't get born. <laughs> Since it's too late, get used to it. You've got a body, even you youngins. Don't you know? It's already, don't you know? If you've got a body, you've got trouble. 
I've been at Mass General all day today, not for myself. And uh, whew, it's uh, quite something. It's like concentration of people who are, they know the Four Noble Truths. They at least know the first and second. So the third is, it's not hopeless. It's not pessimistic or optimistic. It's realistic. It's saying, look, you have caused this. Uh, and there's a possibility of, because you can see into it and understand, that's the core of vipassana, is clear seeing. That's insightful seeing. But how do you do that? And that's the fourth noble truth, the method, the path, the eightfold path. Which is essentially our ethical refinement. There are certain aspects of life that are uh, all the religions emphasize it: don't kill, don't lie, you know, etc. The second is develop a stable, clear, calm mind that's serviceable, workable, and the third is wisdom, insight, so that that clear, stable mind is capable of looking at what's happening and learning. So that as the mind becomes more stable and clear, and a lot of what we practice here is how to do that, a lot of what Vipassana practice is, and the other Buddhist schools as well, is how to improve the quality of the mind. So that the mind, can, in, in Vipassana, it literally means clear seeing, one of its meanings. Deep seeing, insightful seeing. So if we're not seeing the world clearly, that means we're living in ways that don't correspond with how things actually are. And then it shouldn't be a surprise that we create trouble for ourselves. So as the mind starts getting more clear, most important to see itself clearly. Because as it sees itself more clearly, a lot of wisdom practice, which is what this is, is unlearning. It's learning how to let go of what needs to be let go of. It's not working. And yet we've been doing it again and again, sometimes for an entire life. And the evidence is overwhelming. Every time you do this, you get hurt. I'll do it again anyway. Yeah, I see that. I'll do it again. In other words, we betray our understanding. So wisdom is something that is meant to be, is alive. It's, it's, it's breathing. It's meant to turn up in your actual lived life. Okay, that's a prelude to what I want to talk about this evening. I didn't know until um, late this morning, I stepped outside, and this neighbor... I've learned, I've never lived in a situation where on a, on a nice small street, there are neighbors. I lived in big apartment houses, army barracks, uh, monasteries. You know, suddenly uh, there are all these houses and there's something you call phatic communication, P-H-A-T. I think what it means is just to lubricate the channels of communication. So keep things pleasant, but between people who are not going to get involved in any, any deep exchange. So you've heard this one. Hot enough for you? Have you heard that? So I'm learning. At first, when I first heard that a few years ago when we moved in, uh, my wife and I didn't know. You know, finally I've, I've learned. I can now do it too. I, uh, but the same gentleman a few about a month ago is cold enough for you. Or two months ago. And then there's always like, we got a good day on our hands, don't we? I say, yeah, we sure do. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the elaborations that go with that. So there, we're, we are not, there are no news, but it's nice. We smile and we're friendly and some warmth is exchanged. I'm not putting it down. We don't intend to get to know each other, invite you to come by sometime, bring your wife and we'll have dinner. No, it's not even on our mind. It's just we happen to be in each other's presence and we can just walk by like this or just say, I don't know for you. 
game. Yep, sure is. <laughs> um, I wasn't sure what to talk about tonight, and then I just came from a board meeting, um, and I walked in, and these are very sophisticated, highly educated, skilled in their, both long-term meditators and very good at skills that have, uh, so that they're on the board to help CIMC be, uh, exist. Uh, so is it still hot out there? And I found saying, not if you walk in the shade. <laughs> That's me speaking. I, all I need now is a corncob pipe and a straw hat. <laughs> I don't know, change my name too. I don't know, Rufus, I don't know what. Uh, so I, and I realized, okay, we better, you know, this is as good a talk, and I can, I'm gonna try and make it so practical that it can be your homework for the rest of the summer. Because what I'm gonna suggest is that CIMC is premised on this, that there's no separation between what we call practice and daily life. You probably have seen that in some of our flyers. Uh, it's not something that gets left on this cushion or when you go on retreats, leaving it in some monastery or meditation center. Those are special places, and I hope CIMC is for many of you. I know for some of you it already is. If new people, find out. See if it is something useful for you. Uh, if you just uh, you come here, certain things can be accomplished having like-minded people together and being given some instruction and encouragement because we get discouraged. It's not always fun, to this process of learning how to, to get to know the, the mind, is to forget the mind. It's not always fun. And, but then if it, ten, it does tend to then get divorced from the rest of our life so you can be <laughs> You can learn how to sit on the cushion or in a chair and get very happy. Any of you here, if you're new, just be mindful of the breath. It's a skill. It's scientifically verifiable. People have been doing it for thousands of years, long before the Buddha. You just sit and follow the breath, follow it. At first, it'll be hard for you. At a certain point, you learn it like any other skill. You learn how to walk, ride your bicycle, swim, and so forth. You learn it, and then the mind becomes, wow, this is great. If you learn nothing but that, it's good. It's a helpful in life. But it isn't, strictly speaking, wisdom. It's enabling the mind to be still enough so it can see clearly into itself and, by extension, how we're living with, in, in the company of others to see. So the, if the mind, as the mind gets clearer, it has a better chance of knowing what's skillful and what's unskillful. We have to start where we are. We can't wait till we're perfect, until the mind is good. So as the mind becomes more clear through methods and techniques that have been protected in the Buddhist tradition for thousands of years in all the different cultures. As the mind becomes clearer, it can see, it's more likely to be able to discern what is skillful and what is harmful for ourselves and for others. So sometimes you think it's skillful, turns out it isn't. Are you willing to learn from your mistake? A, wisdom, a lot of wisdom comes out of mistakes, out of foolishness. If there wasn't so much foolishness among us humans, there'd be no need for a wisdom path. That's why we need it. They go together. So if you people were really wise, I'd be out of a job. I'd have to. Be, I'd be a beggar in Whole Foods. I'm too too old for you know in order to start a new career. I've already had three of them. So I'm glad that you're ignorant. And so, are you suffering still? Good. Keep it up. Um, okay. So what I'm going to suggest is, in a sense, life exists 
in order to help set us free. Now, it's not an opposition to good relationships with people. In fact, it can't be separated from it. But in other words, what I'm saying is the, great te the greatest teacher, the great master, is not even the Buddha. It's life itself. Life is constantly teaching, endlessly teaching. And so the question is, are we equipped and interested enough to learn from how life affects us? And then in the process, unlearn what needs to be unlearned because it's, it's unskillful, creates suffering. Making room for us to flower as human beings. The practice is intended to help us flower as human beings. Okay, so I'm going to pick something that was suggested by what I just said, the weather. Can the weather actually teach Dharma? Can the weather actually teach us something about wisdom? Yes. I'm going to make a case for it, and then I hope bring it so down to earth that you can use it not only in the summer, but even in the winter. How many of you here have already heard me give this teaching? Show of hands. Just, oh good, then I can even use the same jokes and everything. <laughs> um, what I was going to say, okay, fine, because I would do it anyway, because it's not, <laughs> because it's not something you master, or if you have, great. Uh, what's going on within the Buddhist world, uh, there's a new book, uh, going to be out in a while by the Dalai Lama. Uh, I think it's called something like One Teacher, Many Students, something like that. Because the original teachings of the Buddha, as it spread throughout Asia, and now it's in the rest of the world, each culture put a, a certain twist on it. And yet there's the sameness. Something. So what the Dalai Lama is, is aiming for is for an open, honest discussion so that it's trying to break down sectarianism and all this separatism and all this um, all the trouble that comes from people distinguishing themselves with such pride and arrogance from one another and it's in the Buddhist world as well after all who do you think are Buddhists just human beings who call themselves Buddhists and we might have a nice fancy ideology I just gave you one right Four Noble Truths etc fine the proof of the puddings in the eating how are you Buddhist or not Buddhist, atheist, these are all labels. But the teachings are designed to help us demonstrate wisdom and learn it in our own life. So what's going on, as far as I can tell, because I've been in this for almost 40 years now, uh, CIMC is going to be 30 years old in 2015, um, is we're learning from each other, all the different traditions. I've been in a lot of different traditions, different teachers, different methods. We're sitting with, we've sat with each other's teachers, we've done retreats with each other, we read each other's books. And so there's a coming together because all these traditions were kept apart because of geography, culture, and so forth. But that world is breaking down and we're all in it together. And there's a danger of uh, incoherence, but what the Dalai Lama is getting at is not a sentimental kind of we are all one, we all we're all Buddhists, we all go head off into the sun, sunlight together. What he's saying is, let's learn where there is agreement and where there is disagreement and try to understand that so that everyone benefits from it. It's just intelligent, as usual, coming from. His Holiness is one of the few uh, planetary adults that I know of on the planet. I'm sure there are more. We need a few more. Okay, um, so in my case, I was in, in Zen for 10 years. Um, 
Korean Zen, five years, and a, a Japanese Zen, another five years. This is a, um, a koan. That all the koans are teaching stories. This is in one style of Zen, if you haven't heard about this, where students are challenged with this. It, it comes out of actual stories, and then they're recorded, or to some degree probably made up, and then they're used for generations. They're now, some of them are more than 1,000 years old. So the Korean Zen that I was involved in was a, was a, a koan-oriented approach. Some, there's another kind of Zen, which I was in for the other five years, that's much more similar to Vipassana, where the emphasis is not on koans, but on just awareness, sitting and, and learning. So here's the koan. It comes from ancient China. A student asked Tung Shan, who was a, a famous master, when cold and heat come, how can I avoid them? Tung Sham said, why don't you go to that place where there is no cold or heat? The, the, the student said, where is the place where there's no, hold or heat, or no cold or heat? Tung Shang said, when it's cold, the cold kills you. When it's hot, the heat kills you. What? Sometimes it's translated in when it's, when it's cold, kill cold. When it's hot, kill hot. They mean about the same thing, and I'll try to explain it. Uh, and then give you an example from my own practice. A few examples. Um, what the master is saying is, let's say there's hot weather, and I'm going to give it a Vipassana twist, so you needn't have had any Zen experience. By the way, I always get questions after I mention I've been in Zen. Uh, so why is it, do you think Vipassana better than Zen? It isn't. Zen is beautiful, it's a great culture, great practices. There are other reasons. It's not that Vipassana is better. It's, more, it's turned out to be more appropriate for me, that's all. And for other people, Zen is better. You have to find what's good for you, you newcomers. Okay. Um, when you're experiencing heat, that's a fact. Let's say the temperature is a certain the humidity and so forth. And it affects the body. It's factual. It's not an opinion. But then the mind comes into it. See, the mind always gets into everything. That's why the emphasis to study Buddha Dharma is to study the mind. Because if you don't understand your mind, and one of the main insights is insight into the difference between mind and body. It's, uh, the, the, they're interrelated closely, but they're also quite distinguishable. In other words, what happens to the body is, let's say, hot, whatever hot does to you. And then the mind, each mind makes up a story about what's happening to its body. And then we believe the story, and so the, hot, the heat can be very unpleasant, but we can turn it into torment very easily by the mind making up, this is unbearable, I can't stand this. Oh, when is fall going to come? We, we ju you just said it was too cold. <laughs> you know, make up your mind, you know. Uh, well, it's not going to change. So no matter what it is, the mind always finds some way to whine and complain, doesn't it, to itself? Okay. And sometimes to others as well. Okay, sometimes. All right. Uh, so, uh, what the what uh, this this master, this Chinese master, is saying is that in one translation where it says heat kills, what he's saying is the 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 idea, the concept heat. In other words, if you the mind will say it's very hot, so we label what's happening. It's very hot, and then that sets in motion a whole prolifer proliferation of thoughts and ideas and emotions about it. 
and each one of us has is different. Now I've had years of training with this one, and so let's say when my wife and she's gotten used to me, uh, let's say we come home and we'll open the door, and my wife says, "Oh my God, it's sweltering here," and she'll look at me and says, "Aren't you hot?" I say, "Yeah, but it's okay." So if you're a meditator, you have to watch out because then you cause problems. <laughs> because then she, she used to say, now she doesn't. She got tired. Say, what's wrong with you? Can't you feel? You better get yourself checked. It's very hot. <laughs> so I'm saying, I have a different thermostat. A thermostat. Finally, one day I explained this to her. She didn't like the explanation. Uh, I'm saying, you, you have a different thermostat I do. That's true, too. But... I've had lots of training, so sometimes I'm as uncomfortable as she is. But I'll see my mind whining and complaining. It falls away. That's what it means to, to know the mind is to forget them. To know the self is to forget the self. Who is it that's complaining? It's me. I'm uncomfortable. I'm, it's my body that's hot in my apartment. And all we have to do is turn on the air conditioner. You don't seem to be in a hurry to do it. And I am. And you want to keep the windows open. I think we should shut them. And I say, shut the windows, turn on the air conditioner, because I'm completely at peace being a great Vipassana yogi. <laughs> that makes her more furious. So we're in court now. And, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So the, the other translation is when it's when it's cold, kill cold. When it's hot, kill hot. Now, what that, what that is saying is, it, it doesn't literally mean you, sh you know, here comes the mind sh throws up, oh, it's so hot and terrible, I can't stand it. You don't try to shoot it down. It's, if, if you're aware of it, and our practice, mindful of it, excuse me, if you're mindful of it, to me, I use those terms interchangeably, m mostly, at a certain point, they can be rather different. Um, you, you see the mind going on, and the mind, if you don't identify with it, and you identify with it because you're not paying attention, it's natural for the mind to, to you, you have given it energy by not being, when you're aware of it, it doesn't, you're not nourishing it. When you're not aware of it, it it's getting well-fed. In other words, the, the sense of me is getting nice and plump and happy. And then you turn your, it doesn't like the light, it likes darkness very much. So if you see it, it falls away. That's what killing, it means what falls away is all these ideas about what actually is happening to the body. No one's denying the fact of it. What, what the Buddha is pointing to is that part that is, can be changed. And that is how the mind takes life as, so you can see there's more than about temperature. There's loads of Dharma in this. Okay, let me give you, an, when I was given this koan for the first time many years ago, the way it's done, you can't, I can't, you can't get away with it in this country. Let's say I'd come into this, this Korean Zen master, it's a little room, you come in for an interview, and he gives you this koan, you already have an advance, and then he'll say, what, do you, what can you say for yourself? So I had all kinds of fancy, I had just come out of university life and this and that, and there you can get away with just ringing the bell and then get out. Okay. Here, if I did that, I'd get sued or something. You know, it's sort of, it was, uh, he just, he didn't treat, you know, what are the term that were, something, it would be some term where I, I didn't treat you well. When you, you know, when you don't treat someone, what do they call it? With children, we know what, it, what we, what? Disrespect, abuse. Abuse, yeah. Yeah. 
okay, I can say he, I came in and I answered it honestly and he just said get out and rang the bell. I felt abused and I got very depressed and I had to take antidepressants and, uh, you know, okay, no. Uh, so they can get away with it. And this went on. It was one long retreat. I got in and out, the same thing, no matter what I made up, tingling out. Okay. Then how did I, one day I finally got it. I came in. I walked in and he said, well, what about Tung Shan? And, you know, and I went, took out a handkerchief, it was the summertime, and I went, put the handkerchief back, got up and walked out, he rang the bell, very good. <laughs> so one answer, over the centuries, different exchanges have given different answers to this. By, by the way, you don't, if you memorize it and think that by memorizing it, it's not like getting a, the punchline of a joke. You have to really get it and the real uh, ma masters can see whether you're, it's coming from inside, from it's so authentic or it's just you have the right words to shut him up. It's coming, okay, so um, what was so good about that? Well, years later, uh, one answer to this about uh, the same koan is when it's hot, the Buddha sweats. When it's cold, the Buddha shivers. What else is he going to do? He's a human being. He makes that very clear at his awakening. He says, I'm a human. Okay, are you a, an avatar? Are you this or that? No, I'm a human being, but I'm awake. A Buddha is simply someone who's fully awake. It's not the name of a person in a sense. It's a, a, a quality of, of persons, of minds, consciousness. So I got that. Hmm, that's interesting. Then years later, teaching at IMS, Insight Meditation Society, we go away, residential retreats, and uh, we live there for a number of weeks, and there's a three-mile loop that I, when I like to walk after breakfast and after lunch. It's three miles around. Now, sometimes during a retreat, it's very cold, and sometimes it's very hot. And as I did the loop one time when it was hot, uh, I could see my mind, it was very uncomfortable, uh, even though I passed that koan in the retreat, apparently I didn't really get it because I was walking along and I could see in my mind, here's how my mind handled it. It started fantasizing, oh, it's a three mile, when I get back I'll be wringing wet but I can take a nice cold shower and have some nice cold lemonade and then put on dry clothes and then go teach. And it made me feel better. And when it was cold, I saw my mind do it when it was cold. Next. Uh, the next a different retreat, and, as, and it said, oh, uh, when, it's when you get back to the center, I was really cold, and I perhaps wasn't dressed properly. When you get back, uh, you can have a hot bowl of soup and uh, warm up, and, uh, and you'll feel great. So it made the mind feel good. Now you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Nothing, except in the short run, it makes you feel better. It works, sort of, but it does help a bit. All these images of what's going on, they're not direct seeing. In other words, if I, one of the central aspects of what we have to learn in practicing Vipassana, which I would say is crucial, is don't turn away. As we're learning how to not turn away, because our mind, see if this is so for you, has had a lot of practice preferring a past that's over with, reminiscing, reinventing the past, a horrible past, a wonderful past, or having a wonderful imaginings. There is no future. The past is over with. 
The future, where is it? It's something in our mind. The mind made that up. It's virtual time. We're doing time travel because it's only now. And in the time travel, we live in an imaginary past uh, life where we could be six years old. You aren't there. It's just you. It's like your mind's your your mind is doing the best to recreate something that's already old. It's dead. And it can never happen again. It's over with. I see as I get older. I'm starting to relive some of the old romances I had when I was about 21. You know, when you're kind of dumb, and you know, and you just get into these stupid relationships, but it's exciting. And then, uh, but I didn't know, because I was 21, younger perhaps. And but then it was so nice. Where now I'm so wise and sensible, you know, and I don't make the same goofy, stupid mistakes. But somehow, sometimes, oh boy, and then you remember the name of the person, and then you and then if you're honest, you can see, well, wait a minute, that relationship, it ended, it was a lot of, not that great, was it? The first two weeks were, <laughs> or even a little longer. So, well, what's wrong with walking around that loop and having the mind make up a pleasant environment to distract you from the fact that you're uncomfortable? If you're a practitioner, the whole point of practice is we're going deeper than that. So every time you have an opportunity to pay attention to what's happening now, when we say be mindful of what's happening in here and now, that sounds like we're always on the surface of life. But the more that ability develops, matures, ripens, the deeper you go. So this gives you an opportunity to practice with something that it is more difficult to l look at the mind. And, and at a certain point, I start doing that where I could see that the mind, I could see how much the mind was averse to feeling too hot or too cold. And then suddenly something, something comes, you know, the cavalry comes riding up. Okay, here's a nice fantasy of it's how, how you're going to have a nice uh, hot chocolate or a cold shower or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's, so is that more valuable? You're welcome to do it. But in the long run, you're missing an opportunity to not turn away. Because turning away is uh, when you uh, avoid the fact of how it is for you as a whole being. That means the, the condition of the body, the moods you're in, the thoughts, every aspect of being a human. And the mind fabricates some reality, which we then grasp onto, attach to, and we do a lot of that. Now, I've picked weather to teach Dharma, but it isn't just about weather. Uh, th this paradigm, it's about everything. Uh, those of you, let's see how we're doing here. Not too bad. Um, do you, do you, okay, maybe here's how it, it has applications in everything. That means whatever is happening to us, the mind accompanies whatever is happening to us, and it is a great storyteller. It is fantastic and it will make up, it's better than any novel. Watch your mind, it's better than Saturday Night Live. It's a lot funnier. Not at first, but when you watch it, uh, it's extraordinary what's going on there. Now from the point of view of truth, none of that is true. All of it arises and passes away. And when you look at it, you can see that it has no solidity. If you don't look at it, for example, let's take fear. Very often fear is intelligent. You're about to step off a cliff, or there's a, something dangerous, uh, and fear has some intelligence inside of it. Great. 
learn from the intelligence and avoid that, that's good. But then if you keep dwelling on it, it becomes uh, an obsession, then it's misusing that. But so much of fear, and test this, comes out of the thoughts that the mind have about what it thinks is going to happen. What it thinks is going to happen. And so once you see that, you can see that the mind is making up a story about what is going to happen, and then something in us, if we're not aware, identifies with that story, in a sense, giving those thoughts life. And then that pushes a button, and then fear comes. It's a mechanical process. And the Buddha explained it, but I'll just put it in ordinary language. The, you know, like push a button, you get Coca-Cola. Push this button, you get whatever. You know, we're not allowed. We shouldn't drink that anymore, right? Yeah. Okay. So um, you start seeing that, and in the seeing of it, it starts to lose its power. So you'll be less frightened. Now, the first time fr- you feel fear, uh, it feels as if it's going to be there forever. Let's assume it's not an intelligent fear. Often it has comes from a, a past wound and a concern about it reinstating itself in some present situation. Okay. It, without awareness, it feels like it's going to last forever and it's as solid as a mountain. If you don't turn away, and that's, I would say, crucial, is learning the art of not turning away. If you look at it, it it'll, take, you'll, it'll wipe the floor with you at first. You won't be able to do it. You'll see the mind run away from looking at it. Fine, see that. Learn about yourself. Oh, look at how much my mind can't bear to look at fear. That in itself is valuable learning. The day comes where you can stay with fear. And then once you see that fear is something that arises because of certain conditions, and you see that a lot of it is grounded, the soil out of which that plant grows is, is thinking, it loses its power and it falls away. If you do it a second time, a third time, at a, at soon your relationship to fear changes. And it may come up again, but it no longer has the power that you gave it and then how to find ways to deal with it, like come here, go into therapy, uh, shoot up, or whatever, you, it, all the different remedies we have. Uh, so let's, preventive medicine, see it in the first place. Oh, then you wouldn't come here. I'd have to bag in Whole Foods. <laughs> what I just said is not true. Forget about that part. Okay. Um, physical pain, especially those of you new, if you sit, your body's not used to sitting. But even for some of us practicing for well, sometimes it's the nature of the body that it starts to hurt. Now, let's say there's pain in your knee. These days, having sat cross-legged for many years, sometimes my left knee will start throb, throb, ache, ache. Now, that's a fact. But then the mind will then make up a story about what's happening to the knee. And it's happening to the most important knee in the entire universe, my knee. <laughs> So it's not just a knee, it's my knee, which is essentially me, me and my knee. <laughs> and before you know it, there's self-pity, and then it can turn into torment. And you, you've got to, and then you, you, you jump up in the middle of a sitting, and you finish with meditation forever. Mindfulness, mindfulness, I'm out of here. You know, it's the latest hype. I'm, I'm going back to what I used to do, being unaware. Try that. <laughs> Or are you already an expert at it? Um, okay, so do you see what I'm, what I'm getting at? Uh, last thing before, and then I'd like to open up and see what you have to say. Um, 
Some years ago, somebody said, what if you find out that everything that the Buddha said, there was no Buddha, really some scholars from, I think it was either Harvard or MIT, who had been studying texts and ancients and history of Buddhism and so on. So what if you find out, they didn't find this out, but they said, what if you find out that uh, there was never a, a Buddha, it was made up, uh, that these teachings were invented at a think tank in Stanford University and put together uh, and that it was then billed as an ancient teaching, blah, 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 packaged and brought here from ancient India and uh, being enthralled with that concept, having a romantic view of it, some, uh, we grab it up and then we take it and he said, what if you find out it's, that isn't true? What would you do? I, I was confronted with this and I said, well, I would still keep doing it. Let's assume it's all, there is no such thing as Buddhism. And the Buddha never existed. But uh, what would be my choice? Okay, I've been learning how to pay attention and to learn from what I see and hear, internally and externally. And that's helped me live. So, so let's say, okay, I found out this is all, there was no Buddha, this is all a bunch of baloney. Um, I'm not going to do that again. So what am I going to replace it with? I think I'll live a life of unawareness and no learning. But we're already, we already know how to do that. Just The old mind keeps repeating itself over and over again. It polishes itself a little. Some of the boo-boos that we create, I have a six-year-old who uses boo-boo for everything. Uh, she, doesn't, she hasn't learned awesome yet. I don't think she could pronounce it. So uh, we create boo-boos, and then we improve a little bit. Like some of the problems when we were children, we unlearn that. And then we pick up new ones and new ones and new ones. And then when you get to be my age, people have new ways to complain and whine and, okay. Um, I think that's enough. Uh, any, by the way, uh, there's a, a kind of the etiquette of the hall is if you want to leave, now's a good time to leave, which it is. Uh, or, but in other words, if you're going to stay, you must stay until the end of this discussion. I understand that some of you have timetables, and I would forget about that etiquette. If you can only stay for another five minutes or ten minutes, it's fine with me. Uh, often people don't, uh, they only value what the teacher has to say, and you don't really care what your colleagues or your peers have to say. Some of the most useful things, because we all have the same mind, their questions are going to be your questions, but oh, you're above that, the teacher, he really, what he says is valuable. These other people, they're like me. It's, how, how interesting can that be? If you pay attention, you may find it's more valuable. But anyway, if you want to stay for a little while, it won't be rude to get up and leave. Those of you who know you have to leave now, please do, and so that we can have the most time together. Um, anything we can, it doesn't have to be a question. It can be a comment, a reflection. Uh, what can we talk over together? Please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.